Welcome to Talk With Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive in the world of water with those making waves. My name is Todd Bottler, and I'm your host for Talk With Water. I'm also the principal of Collaborative Water Resolution, which you can find at waterspeeds.org. In addition, I'm editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. Both publications are free. So today I have a special guest who has met me down at the Austin Public Library uh, on the first cool day, really, of the fall. Um, it's like, uh, you know, my favorite time of year once it finally cools off here. Uh, my guest today is Sarah Stogner. Uh, Stogner is a lawyer who, this summer, as a candidate for the Texas Railroad Commission, forced Railroad Commission incumbent Wayne Christian into a runoff. Um, Sarah splits her time between the Permian Basin and Houston, representing operators, service companies, and landowners who are navigating the quagmire of oil and gas risk allocation issues. I've tried to navigate that, too. I've been very <laughs> successful, so I, I may need to give you a call. So <clears throat> Sarah graduated with honors twice from LSU with a BS in international trade and finance in 2005 and her law degree in 2008. Sarah believes that nothing is impossible when we have intellectual honesty. I love that. I, you know, my motto is uh, when people talk, good things can happen. There you go. Yeah. They don't always happen, but they can happen, right? The can's the operative word. So, Sarah, uh, welcome and thank you for being part of Talkless Water. Thanks for having me. So, <clears throat> we always start out with people's background in water or when, you know, water became, you know, an important issue in their lives. So, um, when did water become a focus of the things that you're doing or part of a focus? I, I Professionally, much more recently, but I... I love the water. I mean, I'm a water baby. I grew up in South Florida. I got my scubing, scuba diving certification as soon as I could when I turned 15. Um, I love the water. But it wasn't until I moved out onto a cattle ranch last summer and we had an old oil and gas well that had been plugged that came unplugged oh. and started contaminating the water table that I really became passionate about the intersection of the oil and gas industry and our groundwater. Where was it? Where's that ranch? So that ranch is on the, it's actually on the county line between Ward and Crane counties in the Permian Basin. Okay, gotcha. So, you know, as uh, I mentioned, you were a candidate for the Railroad Commission. Uh, if you live in Texas, and this isn't guaranteed, you might know what the Railroad Commission maybe. does. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> if you don't, you're probably like, okay, well, you know, um, that's keeping the trains running on time, right? <laughs> Not really, is it? What uh, What is that? Yes. Railroad? So the Texas Railroad Commission started out regulating railroads in the late 1800s. It's a three-person elected commission. And as of the mid-2000s, they have jurisdiction over oil and gas, intrastate pipelines, so pipelines that are within the state of Texas, and surface mining for things like coal and lignite. So is there a lot of federal regulation of oil and gas in Texas, or is it mostly handled by um, the Railroad Commission, by state government? Yeah, so there's really not much federal regulation of oil and gas, period, outside of federal lands. And because Texas has no federal lands, it is strongly in the purview of the state regulators. The exception to that is on some of the injection wells. The EPA still has 
primary jurisdiction over class six wells. Uh, but right now the state is in the process of requesting primary jurisdiction over those class six wells as well. So tell us what injection wells are. Right. So injection wells are simply holes in the ground that instead of bringing or extracting oil, natural gas and water out, they are injecting water or CO2 or some other constituent down into the ground. So let's talk about war um, and groundwater contamination in particular from oil and gas production in Texas. Um, you know, where is groundwater being looted uh, as a result of oil and gas production? I guess, you know, a lot of it, maybe, you know, production that was, you know, decades ago. Um, and how big of a problem is this for, for Texas? Yeah. Well, and let's back up. It's not sure. just a Texas problem, right? Okay. The, the basic tenant of kind of ownership in Texas and everywhere else is that the landowner owns the groundwater um, or sometimes the state owns the groundwater, right? But it, the oil and gas companies don't own the groundwater. Right. Oil and gas companies own the right to explore for and produce the minerals and to use what's reasonable and necessary of the other estates, the surface estate, that they're um, entitled to use. And if they go beyond that, then they're responsible for damages. And it's since the beginning of time, oil and gas wells, when we drilled them, were drilled with the intent of protecting the groundwater above them. And so I like to tell people it's kind of like a layered cake. And think about the, the earth is a big layered cake and we've got layers of different types of rock. Some of them are sandy and have water, right? Different permeabilities. And you can get into all the geology talk. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we have a basic agreement with oil and gas and that oil and gas has to protect the groundwater, which is usually shallower than the oil and gas that they're exploring for. And how do you do that? Well, you uh, complete your wells in the right way, which means you have good pipe and you have good cement and you make sure that your different layers of cake are sealed and that they are not cross-flowing or communicating with one another. So... Uh you know, we're getting in the Wayback Machine here, but when I was in college, my first internship, I was, you know, not in college in Texas, but I got an internship, paid internship in Austin the summer of 85. And it was working at the tech, what was the Texas Department of Water Resources. And it was split up by the legislature. And I'm not sure they knew what to do with me. And so they put me in the surfing case, surface casing unit. Oh, interesting. And so... My job as an intern, at least initially, they had a giant leather, I mean, it was like a leather map book. And I was supposed to, like, take the reports of where a well had been drilled. And I had to make a special mark on this leather map to record that. And I was like, I was like, I wonder if anybody, like, really knows. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is like when people didn't have all their records on computer yet. And I'm sure somebody's gone through. And we still no, we don't. Oh no, the, the state records are abysmal. It's it's pretty attractive. That's scary. I it's, hope they're not is. still still using that same leather book. They probably are. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, I think you started out with the question of well, where is this a problem? And and so I said, well, let's back up, right? Talk right. about the basic tenets of, and you mentioned surface casing, right? Surface casing is the first. Uh, Layer of, layer of protection in an oil and gas well. And so you drill down 
to whatever uh, depth past your right past your freshwater zones and you cement your surface casing and then you continue to drill your well and you'll put in another string of pipe. And so what we're seeing is obviously we've learned how to drill and complete wells over the years. We've gotten much better at it, much more efficient, more technology. But at the end of the day, we're still drilling and completing wells much the way we have been over the past 70, 80 years. Gotcha. And so um, where we're seeing problems now is as a result of the shale revolution. And I want to be really careful that people don't uh, take what I'm saying as anti-frac because it's not. It's not the fracturing or stimulation of a well that causes groundwater contamination. It's bad cement and surface casing in that vertical part of the well, right? Gotcha. That uh, if that's not properly done, then when you get to your, your deeper zones, things come up the backside of the well and you find pressures find a way, right? Things right. go from high pressure to low pressure. Right. And so what we're seeing is now that you're drilling these horizontal wells with fracking, uh, when that water, you know, historically, uh, oil and gas is produced with produced water. We call it water. And yep. sometimes, that in a minute. sometimes you get, right, like a one barrel of oil mm-hmm. and you might get a barrel of water or you might get 10 barrels of water or you might get 100 barrels of water. But historically, you were in permeable zones. And so the water that was produced with the oil and gas could simply be re-injected back into that same zone. So out in the Permian and the central basin platform where I am most of the time, uh, right? Most of those wells were drilled to about 3000 feet. The oil and gas is produced and then they go to an injection well and they pump that water that just came out back down hole. Right. Now that we're fracturing and we've got these horizontal wells, the reason we have to fracture is because those uh, formations don't have that natural porosity. The water and gas don't naturally flow. And so you go in and you fracture it, right? You push lots of sand and water in and the oil, gas, water flows back. But you can't re-inject the water into that same zone because it's not permeable. There's nowhere for the water to go. So we have to go inject that, that water into deeper or shallower zones. And what we're seeing is if you inject deep, you get earthquakes and you yeah. inject shallow and you start popping old plugged wells. So you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the Produce Water Consortium. I am. And, uh, you know, I, I had a chance to, to, to tune in a little bit of, of, of the discussions there. Um, you know, what I found, I mean, I, there are a number of things I found interesting about it. But just, you know, so people, you know, listening to this, you don't really know about produced water. So as you know, you're mentioning, you know, you use usually fresh water is what they use. That it doesn't have to be, I don't think, but they, they use fresh water a lot of times for hydraulic fracturing and they add a certain kind of cocktail of chemicals, which is kind of that's a usually a proprietary mixture, right? And so no one exactly knows what's in there. And the water, the produced water that is left over um, from fracking, you know, it can have total dissolved solids between this one article I was reading between 100,000 parts per million and 200,000 or something like that. And the ocean is about 35,000 and what you drink is less than a thousand. And so it's got a lot of stuff in there. Um, But I, you know, it seems to me that Gosh, you know, there's 
you know, reusing it is, you know, for fracking or something, an industrial purpose, cooling, you know, op- operations, something like that is, is maybe kind of the future, but we're not there yet. We're, that's an issue that we're trying to resolve. You know, how do we use this water? Yeah, we know? should stop using fresh water for oil and gas operations, period. Why don't, I mean, why, why don't is we? that? Yeah, I, I've always like, because I was looking at one aquifer that they're using, I was thinking, dang, you know, the quality in this aquifer is pretty good. And, you know, at some point, somebody out there might want to drink the water. I mean, yeah, like the PVA, right. like it's Valley Alluvium, right? That's in yep. the Central Basin platform where That's we are. That's what I was thinking about, yeah. Yep, they're still using it. Um, well, you've got two issues. One is the price. Right. Um, and then two is follow, always follow the money. I mean, that's yeah. that's. And so right now, landowners, that's been a source of revenue for landowners that don't have mineral rights. OK, that's they, what you're talking about. They follow the money. They okay. sell, so they sell the water. Yeah. Um, at the same time, operators can buy fresh water for thirty five, forty cents a barrel. And which is less than one, which is less than a penny a gallon. See, you now you, you don't know this, but you're like making my argument I'm going to be making here the next few months about the water being undervalued. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you hear that, you think, I mean, you listen to what you, you, what's going on on the Colorado out West and other places in the world. I mean, look at Barton Springs. Right. 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 (laughs) Exactly. And people keep saying, oh, well, water's so valuable. It's so valuable, but the value is not reflected. That's the problem most of the time. Correct. Uh, So, so keep going. Sorry, I just, I, you know, I just. No, so you've got so. two issues. One is you've got landowners who've been making money selling their fresh water that want to keep making money. And the producers, it's cheaper to buy fresh than it, in a lot of cases than it is to recycle. That paradigm shift, we are seeing a paradigm shift right now in the Midland and Delaware basins where you have limited fresh water and you can't get fresh water in Midland, yeah. for example. Yeah. So uh, a lot of the operators there are recycling produced water. They're doing it with a basic oxidiz- oxidizing it. They've got to knock the iron out once it gets to a certain, like you said, TDS, pH yeah. metrics. Then um, they reinject it into the frack. Longer term, though, I think we're at about 30 million barrels per day of produced water in the state of Texas oh. that has to go somewhere. And I'm doing my calculation as you so 42 okay. gallons yeah. per barrel. It's a lot of water, and we say produced water or, or brine or right, and we can get sloppy with that terminology. But at the end of the day, produced water is natural, very deep in the ground, but it comes with it naturally occurring radioactive material. So. Right. Radium-226 and 228, benzene, toluene, ethylene, and as my toxic torts professor in law school would say, methyl ethyl bad stuff. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. We've got all this stuff that we've got to deal with. And so at the end of the day, um, you get this water and then you can, you can make it RO quality again if you've got enough money, but then you have a solids problem. Yeah. Right? So when you're talking about that high of a salinity and you get... Uh, phosphates and all this stuff that sulfates, right. That comes up with it and you've got to do something with it. So you either have to take the solids and put it in a solid landfill or you have to slurry it and inject it back down deep through uh, an injection well. And we've got to do something with it, but we are, I've said, if we don't do something drastic quickly, the Permian basin will be uninhabitable in 20 or 30 years 
And I'm, that's not hyperbole. That is absolute reality. You can look at the cancer rates in Crane. Um, we have produced water infiltrating all of our freshwater zones in places where we have oil and gas. That's just, that's what it is. And so we can't fix it, but we can manage it. Well, you know, we had a, here's a shameless plug for the Texas Water Journal. We had an article a few years ago about creating a, a kind of a hydrovascular network, you know, to recycle that water so it could be used for fracking again, again, all that. I mean, it seems like, I mean, there are lots of pipelines out there and oil and gas industry is great at, you know, building pipelines. You know, it's, I, you know, I kind of wonder, you know, is it far-fetched to think that they could have a, a system to take that water and, and, you know, reuse it, you know, clean it up a little bit, but keep using it for fracking a lot of it. No, that's not far-fetched at all. And it's happening. Um, you one of the issues there is you don't have eminent domain power like you do in regulated utilities. And so we're seeing a really big push from the midstream water guys right now to become a regulated utility okay. so that they can have eminent domain to be able to lay pipelines. But over the past 10 years, you have several midstream water guys that have entered the market. You'll see each of them have kind of picked their area where they've spent money and developed the infrastructure. And I think now that you've got some major players, there's going to be more of a legislative push, if I had to guess, on that front. And ownership rights are going to become an issue because produced water has been a liability up till now. And even though the surface owner owns right. the water... Right. The oil and gas operators have the right to use the water and the obligation to dispose of produced water properly. And I think that there's a push right now in this next session uh, by the oil and gas industry to really clarify who has the right to that produced water as it becomes more of an asset and less of a liability. You know, and it's crazy to, to think about this sometimes, but um, it will have a value eventually. I mean, I just, you know, 10, 20 years ago, people were thinking, oh, bra I have brackish groundwater for me. Now they're like, hey, I got brackish groundwater. I mean, you know, because the, there's somebody who may want that in the not too distant future as other alternative supplies are unavailable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 1800 TDS with some minimal filtration is going to start looking really good. Right, right. Um, so just, oh, just so that, you know, our followers or listeners, and I hope there's somebody listening, I'm sure there is, midstream to Yep. What is that? Yeah. So that just, sorry, that's kind of jargon in oil and gas okay. industry. Uh, midstream is the ones that are handling the movement of it. So after it's come out of the well and before it reaches its end user. And so midstream in the oil and gas context is the pipelines that bring it from the wellhead to the refineries or to the um, natural gas power plants. Right. Okay. Um, and in the water space, it's getting it from the well back to a well, back to a frack, gray water treatment, you know, something, uh, agricultural use for non-human consumption, things like that. Okay. So uh, abandoned wells. So, you know, when were the first wells drilled in Texas? The 20s Late, or before that? Uh, yeah, early, early 1900s. Early 1900s. And so there are a lot of old wells all over the state. And we have this issue with abandoned wells. Um, and recently, uh, the uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Biden, I guess, you know, about a year ago. And it had money for plugging those wells. 
Um, so talk a little, tell us a little bit about that issue, you know, kind of, you know, what is the, I don't know, you know, kind of what's the, the size of the problem, you know, and what do you, what do, what do you face there trying to find those wells and get them plugged? And Right. So if you ask the Railroad Commission, they say that we have about 8,000 orphaned wells in the state of Texas. And when we say orphaned well, what we mean is a well with which there is no... Uh, you know, legally responsible entity with money to satisfy its decommissioning obligation. So the, the company that drilled that might be long, I mean, out of business for decades or something, right. or you might not even be able to figure out what company drilled it. Correct. Okay. So uh, unfortunately in Texas, we have a perverse incentive to not plug wells. If you are an operator and you plug a well, you remain liable in perpetuity to make sure that that well remains plugged. So right now on the ranch where I live in West Texas, we have a lot of wells that were drilled by Gulf Oil in the 50s and 60s. Chevron acquired Gulf Oil. Chevron plugged out a lot of those wells. Gulf plugged out a lot of those wells. And when those wells that they plugged come unplugged, uh, the Railroad Commission sends a notice to Chevron to come back and replug that well. Gotcha. Now... If they don't plug it and it's temporarily abandoned, shut in, anything other than plugged and abandoned by the operator at the time when it's transferred, then a new operator uh, can come in and, and take over. Yeah. And so what you'll do is you've got, especially in these older fields, say you originally had 100 wells that were drilled in a lease and maybe now five of them are producing uh, 50 have been plugged and there's 45 just sitting and rotting. When an operator assigns that field to a new operator, they remind, they remain liable for the ones that they plugged, but the new operator is on the hook going forward. And so what we're seeing right now in this ESG time of really activist pressure from mm -hmm. Wall Street and investors is we've got the super majors who are assigning their interests in these old wells to smaller operators who do not have the balance sheets to be able to go in and plug these wells when they catastrophically fail from the overinjection of water that we're seeing right now. Okay. Huh. And so uh, can they get uh, money from the state to help them when they have a, a failure like that? I, or, or is this money that's coming from the Infrastructure Act? Is that kind of the first, you know, money available for that? So, no. Um, operators in the state of Texas pay bonds that go to, unfortunately, they don't go to a separate fund. They go into our general fund. Yeah. Um, and then they get allocated every year. Uh, the state just received, I think it's $25 million of about 300 and something million that's available to Texas for this first round of plugging. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yes, they every year the, the Railroad Commission has a budget. I think this year or their upcoming fiscal year is about $130 million budget. And half of that, so about 55, 60 million is going to go to plugging orphaned wells. Wow. Wow. And uh how many do we think there are? I think there's over 100,000. Oh, gosh. Okay. And they're not just, I guess, out in the Permian. I mean, you know, there was a lot of oil and gas production in East Texas and places like that, too. Yep. We've got the Eagleford in the south. Um, you've got the Haynesville in the east. You've got North Texas. I mean, Texas is, if we were a standalone country, we would be the 
second or third largest producing nation of oil and gas every single day, depending on the day. Wow. So, um, yeah, we've got a lot of wells in the state. And until recently, plugged wells were staying plugged, even though they weren't plugged to today's standards, yeah. because we weren't putting any unusual strain on them downhole. But now that we're injecting all this water. Okay, so so those, those uh, wells that have been plugged and were fine under the conditions that um, might have been, uh, you know, occurring previously, now that we're pressurizing in other places, it's a different set of stress. Right. Okay. So like in the Permian where I am, for example, we're seeing the Tanzel formation, which has lots, it's very porous mm -hmm. and it's not naturally uh, pressurized or, it, and it doesn't naturally contain hydrocarbons, mm -hmm. but it sits next to a salt formation. So what's been happening is we're getting water flow now, salt, where you've got it through the permeable rock and it's hitting the salt and then it starts dissolving the salt. And then you start creating caverns, subsurface salt caverns wow. of dissolved brine that then finds its way to surface. Okay. Wow. Any, any uh, subsidence associated with that? Any uh, sinkholes? Yeah. Okay. So my, one of my favorite is, <laughs> is uh, right next to Beamer Lake in Imperial off of Highway 1053. Okay. And if you go and look, TxDOT has budgeted $35 million dollars to relocate Highway 1053 to Highway 11 because of a sinkhole that formed from an improperly plugged well. Huh. And Highway 11 is also sinking. Uh, in Pecos County alone, there's over 30 of these actively flowing abandoned wells. Okay. And yes, they are subsiding and wink sink. If you look, you, people can Google wink sink sinkholes in West Texas. Wink sink, W-I-N-K. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Beamer, which is, is actually spelled Bomer, B-O-E-H-M-E-R. Uh, they can look these up and it's documented very well. So I have that. I have on my yeah. list here to ask you about <laughs> that. <clears throat> but um, before we do, uh, Halloween's almost here. Uh, tell me about a zombie well. What is a zombie well? Yeah, so I say that we're going to have a zombie apocalypse. It's just going to be wells, not yeah. people. And what's happening is, is you've got these wells that have been sitting dead for a really long time, and they either weren't plugged, they um, or they were plugged poorly, and they are now being subjected to different subsurface conditions as a result of our overinjection of produced water, and they're coming alive and flowing at surface. And uh, this is beyond my pay grade, uh, but essentially you've got a hydrostatic head, right, right in right. a well. And at the shallow zones where we're seeing flow occur, these are unkillable wells, meaning there's no, until we get the subsurface pressure to stop exerting subsurface, yeah. there is no way to get enough hydrostatic head from the surface to kill a well in the traditional means that we kill a well. So you mean it's, it's not a situation where you can just plug the thing. Right. So if you look um, in Crane County at the beginning of this year, I think it was like January 2nd or 3rd, a geyser started spraying about 150 feet in the air. Texas Monthly covered it. Um, that was a core test well, which means it was never producing of oil and gas. It was just a hole that they dug in the ground to, to see essentially the core, to see what was what down was there. there. Yeah. And um, we've got lots of these. And where that flow is coming from, you've got fully saturated brine. So it's 10 pound water, you mm. know, fresh water's seven something, right? Right. And 
Um, so you've got 10 pound, if you had a gallon jug of it, this water weighs over 10 pounds per gallon. Now, hold on a second. Remember, like I said, we're filming at the public library. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah, no. So what happens is, is you've got this fully saturated brine that's flowing from a shallow zone, four or 500 feet. And even if you were to wait, Bayright mud something into that column, mm-hmm. you uh, instead of being able to stop the flow, you fracture the rock formation below it. Okay, and you just make the situation worse. Oh boy! Uh, and so you you mentioned Lake or Boom? Is it Bomer Lake or Lake Bomer? The, the, so. Yeah, the people in West Texas pronounce it Beamer. Beamer. Okay, um, we had a high school football coach named Beamer. I don't think it was spelled that way. Um, so tell us about that, because that kind of, you know, erupted on the scene here um, earlier this summer or was it late last spring. Yeah. So Beamer Lake is, again, off Highway 1053 in Imperial. It is a old well that was drilled originally as an oil and gas well. Um, and then it's my understanding it never actually produced oil and gas. Um, they drilled it and then the operator... Uh, they call them P13 is the modern day form, but it's a one page affidavit where the oil and gas operator is supposed to plug the oil and gas well into the deeper zones so that it's no longer communicating with oil and gas producing zones. Right. And then they recomplete it into a fresh water zone and they transfer ownership to the landowner and future plugging liability to the landowner. The issue that we're dealing with now is the Railroad Commission likes to go and brag about how it plugs 8,000 wells every year, orphaned wells every year, at an average cost of about $20,000 per well, which you cannot adequately plug a well for $20,000 in today's economy. It just doesn't happen. And so they're not actually really plugging these wells. They're dumping some cement in them and calling it a day. And they're refusing to tackle these really difficult wells because that's a lot of money. Uh, it's a lot of notoriety. It would come with, right, some press. Yeah. And you don't see those. So they're not tackling the ones that are difficult. They're tackling the easy ones. And um, what they've said is, oh, look, this is a water well. We don't have jurisdiction anymore. It's ridiculous. It really is. Huh. And so uh, this lake, Boomer Lake, was created by one of these wells. Yes, it's been flowing to surface for over 70 years. 70 years. Okay, wow. And so it just did it recently just get to the size where people start talking about or what? No, um, I think I got almost naked on top, of, on top of a pump jack and started bringing some notoriety to it. But no, they've been... Oh, that was been where that was? Very nearby. Yeah. Okay. So okay. we've been... Um, Beamer Lake's been around for a long time. There's been press coverage about it off and on for over 15 years. Okay. And it just hasn't had the the political traction because no one's really a. Aggr- it's in the middle of nowhere. You know what I mean? It's in right. the middle of West Texas. Right. And if you're not out there um, understanding what's going on, it's easy. It's easy to pull up on it and think, oh, this is pretty. It's water in West. I mean, it smells, you know, yeah, atrocious. Right. right. But um, it looks beautiful because you've got a, a really thick layer of salt on the bottom. So it looks like a Caribbean. It's white on the oh bottom with water and it looks Caribbean, but it's not. It's it's um, it's a toxic lake that's over 60 acres that has was created by a former oil and gas well that's been flowing to surface. 
Yeah. And is this uh, all on one ranch or multiple property owners having to deal with this? Or have- So the, it's my understanding that the people that own the surface at Beamer Lake are not local, that it's actually some, I think, some Chinese ownership. And then I think somebody got cute and put parcels of land on eBay. And so they act not they no bought joke. this thing. People, people, wow. surface owners nearby are usually out of state. They're not local. Thinking, oh, I got a great deal, you know, three or four hundred dollars an acre for some land, and really they just own a toxic. Um, are they like responsible now in some ways for that? Um, arguably, the railroad commission yeah. has said that they could go in and plug it, but then they'd have to sue the landowner for reimbursement. Oh my gosh. Uh, boy, that is a mess, isn't it? Hmm. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, I guess it seems like, wow, these problems are really, really kind of multiplying. I don't know if that's, if that's the right perception or not, but they're being compounded. Yeah. So these problems have always existed. I mean, oil and gas exploration is necessary yeah. for modern day life. Um, but it's not simple and it's technically complex and accidents happen. So we have to, when accidents happen, we have to fix them, right. learn from the mistake and move right. on. And, and what we're really seeing now more recently, especially in the last year since COVID oil and gas production has ramped back up um, and we've got all this water is we're seeing it's exacerbated uh, 70 years of kind of shoddy workmanship is rearing its ugly head. And just like you plant a crooked row of crops, yeah, right. Come harvest time, you're going to see that you planted a crooked row of crops. And mm. now we've got some bad wells and come harvest time, we're seeing those bad wells come to life. And uh, was something else I want to ask about, uh, and that is uh, seismicity. Yes. Um, so I guess, you know, you, you know, you may have, or I'm talking about people in general, may have seen uh, some reports about increased seismicity in Oklahoma in the last few years. And now uh, it appears that there's a, a trend in, in Texas. And is that in kind of located in the Permian for the most part? And is it related, you think, to disposal of produced water or what's yep. going on there? Yep. So I, it's funny. I had a podcast several years ago. Uh, probably four years ago, I did an episode with a reservoir engineer and we talked about this exact thing about how Texas needed to learn from Oklahoma because Oklahoma was having major earthquake issues with their produced water. And so what you see now is these SRAs or seismic review areas throughout Texas. Uh, I think most of them are focused in the in the Permian. But from talking to the geologists and the engineers, it's my understanding that there is a direct causal link between saltwater injection at deeper intervals and essentially it lubricates the faults and Uh then you get earthquakes. Right. And so they have reduced injection, deep injection in those SRAs. Now that water is to being diverted shallow. And what we're seeing is a failure of these other shallow well bores um, and a flow to surface or very near surface in these wells that is hidden because it's breaching into our freshwater zones. And so unless and until you install a monitoring well and get a full and complete you know, development of that well and see the water, 
But again, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a geologist. But from talking to those experts, it's my understanding what happens is you'll get a leakage of produced water into a freshwater zone. And because that salty water is heavier, it stays lower in the uh, reservoir zone and migrates sideways. So you can have lots of produced water infiltrating from below a freshwater zone and it doesn't get identified very quickly because in your water wells, most of the time you're pulling from a shallower interval. Uh And as long as you have enough fresh water sitting on top of your produced water, you're going to show clean water, but that below it, you may have, and, and this is not an exaggeration, millions of acres of contaminated groundwater aquifers that haven't been identified yet because it's deeper in that aquifer and shallower you have enough to keep your wells producing yeah. fresh water right yeah. is it are these uh you know lord earthquakes ones that produce uh, property damage or is there any They can. can. Yeah. So, you know, if you asked people in Midland two years ago if they were worried about earthquakes, I think most people would have said no. And now you've got people with drywall damage and they're reading their homeowners insurance policies and finding that there's an earth movement exclusion. And it's it's it is it's causing property damage. And uh, more importantly, right, it's uh, a mother earth is literally crying out like we are impacting her and. Um, we've, we've, again, we need our oil and gas industry, but we have to do it the right way. And if it means it costs more money to responsibly produce it, then we have to do it the right way and pass that cost on to consumers so that they can make consumption decisions. And it's not just continuing to do it the same way we've always done it and, and kicking the can down the road until our grandkids have no potable water. Yeah. Yeah. And what from what so what I'm hearing from you, it may, may, I want to make sure I have this, um, you know, correctly is we can still produce oil and gas through hydraulic fracturing. We just have to be uh, a little more careful about how we're doing it, or we have to take put some more measures in in, in some specific areas uh, to make sure that we're not creating a, a big problem for the future. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Okay, good deal. Um, well, let's see. I'm trying to think. Uh, how about this? Why don't you tell us, is our, our final question here, Okay. Um, how our listeners can find out more about the work that you're doing? So, believe it or not, TikTok is my new favorite medium. I, get, I don't know. My daughters are, like, on TikTok. I don't really, I don't know how to do it, but boy. Yeah, I thought it was a bunch of teenagers dancing yeah. until COVID. Um, and this time, about this time last year, I got on, um, and I have to say... It's an excellent way. You really do curate the content that you see. Huh. And so I, I'm, it's my stuff's a bunch of educational nerdy, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. there's lots of cool, if you're for water nerds, uh, there's a lot of water nerds on TikTok. So really? I, I okay. really encourage you. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm the unicorn lawyer on TikTok. And then I have a new TikTok uh, handle that's just dealing with these zombie well issues that's zombie wells and then it's w e l l z cuz somebody else got to zombie wells before oh, i could dang. but um yep and then you can follow me on twitter i'm sarah for rrc the number 4 rrc okay. linkedin i'm pretty easy to get in touch with and then my general firm website is stognerlegal.com great great 
um, you know, I have to say that, um, you know, I am trying to get, you know, you know, into TikTok and things like that. You know, I finally got Twitter to where like, okay, I know Twitter and LinkedIn. I had to do those and link them together. I'm not a big Facebook person yet. We've got some Facebook accounts that we use, but, um, boy, I'm, I'm curious though. It sounds like young people are like interested in this. If you're doing this on TikTok, that, that there are, you know, younger folks who are like, ah, you know, I'm interested in water issues and, and this is something that they, they picked up on. Yeah. So you know, t- the good thing about TikTok is we, people are visual. Yeah. And so on these things that are technically complex, it, it gives you a way to visually show. And now you've got 10 minute, up to 10 minute videos. But until recently, it was a three minute cap. But you can get a lot of explanation done in three minutes. So, okay. um, yeah, it's a whole wide range of people. And I would say try it out. It's um, and it's unlike other social media platforms, what you create and share yeah. is totally different than what you may see. Okay. And so your likes and your preferences of what you watch are private. No one else can see what you're liking. And so you're, if you do it right, you're actually curating content for yourself that's very educational um, and not a complete waste of time, believe it or not. Whereas I think a lot of other social media, you can get sucked into the just kind of the vanity of it. Well, okay. I may have to go back and give another look uh, because my daughters will be in the back of the car and I always hear, it sounds like it lasts, like it's like 10 seconds or less and then it replays. And I keep A lot the of videos, thing. yes. And so I'm like, that would, that would slowly drive me mad. But, <laughs> but if it's, if there's more to it than that, then I will have to, to look into it. Sure. So, well, hey, listen, Sarah, thank you for joining us today. I mean, this is fun, and, you know, we kind of arranged this at the last minute, uh, but I really enjoyed getting to know you and, and learning more about um, about water issues out in the Permian Basin. Yeah, it, it's Texas, right? They say we're going to double our population over the next, I don't know, 30 years or whatever right. it is. Uh, we, again, we need intellectually honest conversations because these are difficult topics with no easy solution and all stakeholders are going to have to come to the table uh, to come up with with what we're going to do for our basic infrastructure needs moving forward. I couldn't agree more. Thanks. Well, it was fun. So this has been Talkless Water. My guest today was Sarah Stogner, a lawyer who is working to change the way oil and gas production is regulated by the Texas Railroad Commission. I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. I also want to give a big thank you to Anna Huff at the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University for getting each episode of Talkless Water ready to roll. My name is Todd Butler. Let's talk water again soon. <laughs>